G'day, everyone. Welcome to Talking Leadership. My name is Eric Perez. Thank you for joining me again. By way of introduction, my guest is, amongst many hats that he wears, a keynote speaker, an author, a coach, a trainer. He is a graduate of MIT and was formerly a professor at John Hopkins. He has facilitated well over 2,000 workshops and has come into contact with at least 20,000 CEOs. Can I welcome to today's podcast, Don Schminka? How are you, man? Great, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time, Don. We we were discussing offline some of the questions I've got here, and I can't wait to tease out some of your thinking around these. So let's go to the first of the questions that I have is, from your experience, what do you believe are fundamental leader capabilities? Well, that's a good question because we got 10 or 20,000 books a year coming out on leadership. A lot of it is regurgitated material. I, I When I train CEOs, I've because I've I guess I've trained about 20,000 over the years. And this is a good question because they're looking for, you know, who who do I select to move up in leadership in my company? And some of the fundamentals that came out of a lot of the research, especially studying the failure rates of leadership training and development, is I find that we're ignoring a, some biological uh, issues. One of the things that I, a lot of CEOs get excited about is learning about the work of Dr. Elliot Jacks, who did research on the brain's uh, capacity for handling cognitive complexity. And it's not about IQ. It's not about intelligence, not about emotional quotient or anything like that. It had to do with just the ability to connect the dots. You know, in other words, being able to see complex patterns. And he found out that every human has a different level and that fewer and fewer can think out and higher orders of complex ways. But by that, I mean, he used time span as a way to determine a person's complex thinking capability. Some people can think out a week. Some people can think out a few months. Some people can think out a year or five or 10 or a hundred years out. And that was a good way to look at leadership because everybody needs to be at the right level of thinking. So I think one of the fundamental capabilities is, are you able to think at the level you are in your company? And, you know, I run into a lot of executives that, uh, you know, when I do my workshops and and companies, I always ask some of these questions and it's like, hey, how many times do you run into somebody who just doesn't get it? And they'll like roll their eyes, like, you know, like, what time is it? (laughs) You know, I ran into somebody uh, just this morning and I said, well, what's the problem? Because you try to work with them to get it, but they never get it. Could be that we promote people beyond their level of complex thinking, because if they're not getting it, it could be you're presenting a concept that is farther out in terms of a time horizon or a complex nature that uh, they're not going to be able to understand. Now, it's not that everybody has nothing to do with intelligence, which is really, really interesting. It's, you know, they're, they're, there are a lot of Nobel Prize winners who are thinking in day to day and, and they need to for the research they're doing. They don't want to be distracted by, you know, 10 years out. So I would say be at the level of thinking that fits where your leadership uh, is in the organization. The other fundamental capability is that, you know, how do you define leadership? Well, it's it's who has the followers. And again, it's one of those things people don't think about. It's, it's like, hey, the person with followers is the leader. So do you have followers? And it's a dangerous question because some people are like, well, I have people that are complying <laughs> to be with me, but I don't know they're really following me. And that that drove earlier research too, which was interesting because when uh, you know some of our work is being used at Apple uh, through my colleague Cameron Logman and uh, some really great companies and this controversial work, but it's it's useful to think about is what are people following? Because let's for instance, Steve Steve Jobs dies. 
that we got to figure out how to do innovation. We have to figure out how to, well, anyway, they write books about it. They do movies about it. And what do they say about it? His leadership. It sucked. <laughs> call him an asshole. They call him this, call him that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, how's this guy violate everything we teach him in management school and create the most powerful company in the world? And then it became clear. People don't follow the leader. You need followers, but they're not following you. They're following the story you represent. And this opened up a whole new area. Uh, we ended up stealing from the Vikings the term a compelling saga. If you don't have a compelling saga for them to follow, then you're not really leading because they're not following you. You know, you could be a great guy, you could be an asshole, doesn't matter. They're following the story you represent. And that was an area where me CEOs are like, oh my God, I've never heard this before. And nobody teaches this, you know? And it's like, with that, but that's the point. And, and I'm not talking about a touchy-feely mission statement, you know, because that's great if we have them. And, you know, we always, we all want happy employees to follow them, this nice, motivating mission statement. But this is something different, you know? And, um, and I'm all for the happy employee movement. Although I got to say, I think we went a little overboard on the happy employee movement. <laughs> I, I think the danger question that's not being asked is what do people do when they're not happy? Do they lock arms with you and go into battle or do they turn and run and leave you stranded alone? And what I've found is that the, the compelling saga is different than a touchy-feely mission statement. It's really something that challenges people to have passion for some formidable event in the future where they need each other in order to accomplish it. And they're willing to do two things that no training program in any company teaches unless they're military operations. And, and those are the two things that I think separate the great teams from the weak. And that is, are we willing to suffer and sacrifice together to achieve what's next? And so that's what I'm trying to teach. That's what I'm trying to do when I, when I do my corporate workshops or if I'm on stage at a conference, you know, I raise this up and, you know, and I get no resistance. It's like, it's like the eyes open, like, oh my God, that's what I need. I need a team that can be happy, cool, and we can do great things, but are they willing to suffer with me when we need to? Because great strategic achievements normally aren't nice, touchy-feely, let's have fun. Sometimes it takes work. I'm at um, what are the formative stages of, of having discussions with uh, leaders. I've, I've only, uh, not only, I think it's an achievement for me, at least that I've had about 170 conversations with leaders in Australia and some internationally, nice. including yourself. And I'm, I'm on the start of a journey and I'm learning some things that I didn't really think about before. And, and if anything, and I, I recommend to anyone that wants to start talking on a podcast that has a, a topic they want to get into, into the weeds around leadership is one that, that is constantly fascinating to me. And one thing you brought up with your first example is there are some very intelligent, very technically minded people that get promoted to levels of leadership that aren't prepared to do it or understand what it means or what you were saying before, maybe don't have that cognitive ability to join the dots. It's not that they can't, they may not have the formula to do it. And that is something that unfortunately, I think it's more common than people realize. I've spoken to a lot of ex-military people and people that are currently serving and it comes through quite strongly that in the military context, when they train for leadership, everyone is being trained to understand what it means to lead the next level above them. And that that is something I don't think is a is a corporate part of corporate 
DNA. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the military has uh, some advantages in that they can watch people in action in very high extreme environments. So it's really easy to find out, you know, who are people following? you know, in a crisis and who has the capability to think out several steps ahead when they're trying to solve a problem, because everybody wants to follow someone who can see farther. You know, if they're following a manager who can't see farther than they can, they're going to disrespect that manager and look to the person above them. That, a lot of this came out of Elliot's research as well. So it's, it's controversial psychiatric research. It's very politically incorrect, but it works. And so um, when we design organizational structures, this is one of the things we need we need to look at. And we try to teach uh, CEOs and HR departments, you know, how do you detect this? Because promoting just on senior seniority or because somebody's a nice nice person isn't really the best way of doing it. When you say the research before from Elliot was uh, possibly not politically correct, in what in what way can you elaborate a little bit for me? Yeah, we're we're kind of always taught. It's funny when I do I do this three hour workshop like six times a month with groups of maybe a dozen CEOs, and I say I say, look, this can be this is going to be politically incorrect, but it's scientifically defensible. <laughs> and one of the things is as I start to erode management theory for the high failure rates, I do re- replace it with provable elements. You know, like we've doubled and tripled the size of companies within a few years, in some cases, 10 times their size. So we know it works. And um, one, of the, one of the things is uh, uh, not everybody has potential. And we're always taught, no, everybody's got potential. And it's like, I don't know, I'm going to call bullshit. I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast, but- No, that, that's fine. That's fine. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Because the the thing is, is I think people have potential for what they're biologically designed for. And neurologically, from the psychiatric research, some people can think out to a certain level, and then that's it. And no amount of coaching and training gets them to think farther. And that's, this explains why there's been such a high failure rate when trying to work with someone and you supply them so much training, so much coaching, so much education, and they still can't rise up to take on that next level project or the next level of leadership. And then eventually they're in the wrong place. You have to tolerate their behavior or fire them. Or if they're enlightened enough, they want to go back to the job they were doing well. You know, and and so this causes a lot of politics. This causes a lot of angst because we're not accepting that. Look, we all perform well where we're designed to perform well. To move us into another place is uh, is going to be a crisis, and you know it's hard. I've had some discussions with some very creative thinkers that have said one leaders in particular that have said to me, leadership is also a choice. So when you're talking about capability or people's cognitive capacity to maybe do the job at that next level, I think leadership is also a choice. And if people are being fed income about what their capability is, saying yes to look like you're trying to strive for the next level and knowing you're not capable or even interested is another problem as well, because most people are driven by an ego we've all got one and i think to admit publicly you're not ready or capable of doing something is not something many people are prepared to do it it, uh, why would you create that kind of dissonance in your own mind that but some companies actually do design it into their promotion and selection where they'll put people in situations say look you want to move up in leadership here's what it's going to take and there's a high dropout rate it's people like what i gotta deal with these people issues I've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with like, pff, no way. I'm gonna At least it's honest. At least it's yeah, honest. Because yeah. otherwise they get there. And, you know, this stuff is so, 
I think we we know it. We, we're afraid to talk about it, but it leaks out in our media. I think one of the best commercials. I know in the U.S. we have this insurance company called Geico, and they have these really great comedy commercials that make the point. And the one that I think makes this point that we all think but we don't want to say is I think the commercials on why Pinocchio can't be a motivational speaker. And in the commercial, Pinocchio is in front of the room telling everybody they have potential, being a motivational speaker. And there's this one guy he looks at and says, well, you can be, you have potential too. And his nose starts growing because now he's lying. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, no, no, really, really. And his nose is getting along. So this is just, and the thing is, it has nothing to do with intelligence. That's the problem. We, we believe that this is pegging people or it's limiting them. It's no, it's just, you know, I'm not tall enough to play basketball. Do I feel bad about that? No, not really. I never thought I would. Is, is someone able to put together a strategy for positioning a company for success in five years out? Well, that's an important question because if you're going to take that role, you better be able to demonstrate it. But to be promoted to that point where you have to take over a division or a project and be able to figure that out and you realize you can't, you have just sabotaged, well, the, the company because now you're not going to execute and the people following you are going to realize you can't figure it out, you know, and I don't want to follow you if you can't figure that out. You make an interesting point. Let, let me throw a grenade in the discussion if we're, if we're going to go down the track of uh, <laughs> talking about potentially controversial topics. And I, I don't think this one's too controversial, but I, I personally make a distinction between individuals and leadership roles in companies and then the, that, that amazing group of human beings that are entrepreneurs. I think with, a, with an entrepreneur, when they know they don't have the skill sets to in, increase the capacity of their business or grow, that they will buy those capacities in, but they have to have a level of self reflection that says, I can't do everything, but I can buy in the talent. And that's my way of dealing with those gaps. Is that is that true of the entrepreneurs you've met in your travels or is that too, too big a generalization to make? No, no, I think, uh, and, and thanks for following me down the rabbit hole here that I've opened up for you. <laughs> That's okay. We're here to learn and have conversations and I've, your first few minutes blew my mind. So we'll let, let, let's get deeper into the rabbit hole. Why not? Sure. Uh, entrepreneurs is a very interesting area and I've been doing some research uh, on this as well. And yes, the entrepreneur needs to be able to think in complex pattern ways because they're stepping out into the world to start something up. So they have to be able to see things. For instance, you know, who's the customer? You know, why are they going to buy from me? How do I develop this product? Or how do I develop the channels? Or, you know, they're they're thinking through the art of creating and putting an idea into action. So that's a different level of thinking than somebody just that says, well, you know, I need my to-do list. What do I do today? Well, pick up the phone, dial this number. That's different. You know, so so people. Uh, taking on entrepreneurial endeavors need to be able to think uh, and at those levels of complexity strategically and somewhat tactically as well. But here's the other thing that entrepreneurs have, which is now I'm going to say something else politically incorrect. I don't think we can train entrepreneurs because what the research is coming out medically is that it's part of our biology. Most entrepreneurs have higher capacity for risk than normal people. And that is why they're willing to risk. That's why they're willing to put their homes on the line. That's why they're willing to put their careers on the line or, or venture off for the far shores when there's no guarantee you're going to make it. These are entrepreneurs and there's something there. There's an interesting book. Let me see if I can um, get, get the exact title here. That was put out that by uh, a researcher 
and a therapist that I that I know who's done some interesting <laughs> exploration of this, and he it's called hypomania. What was happening is he wanted to find out, or, and he started noticing when people create countries or they do something like like Columbus to set sail. What is going on in their lives or in their minds that are making that possible? And uh, Dr. John Gardner is his name, and Gardner put together this interesting book looking at the biography of these game changers in the world throughout history and actually detecting that there is a form of <laughs> disorder. <laughs> now, maybe it's a disorder or maybe it's an order. See, that's the interesting question emerging. Like maybe our civilization needs people who are willing to take the risk or do something crazy in order to make other things happen for us. Because if we just stayed safe, we wouldn't have migrated that far out of Africa, you know, but somebody did. And I think those are entrepreneurs. When you talk about leader capabilities, whatever they are, capabilities puts a boundary on things in that you're only capable to a certain point. Um, someone can say or can be assessed as being a quite a, 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 an amazing strategic thinker, but there are limitations to what you can do. And capabilities put some boundaries there. I, my reading of this with the entrepreneurs is they don't give a crap about boundaries. It, if they can't break the boundary, they'll find someone who will help them break the boundary. And then they're at a different level again. And I've often thought, is an entrepreneur a, a risk junkie? They just can't get enough of it. And from what you're saying, that it's kind of holding true that they, they have an appetite for risk that is not the norm. Um, I'm not going to say it's abnormal. Yeah. It's just not what others would do. And I know from myself and I'm look, I'm trying to be as introspective as I can, I could never do what the, the great entrepreneurs do and, and the ones that are here running small businesses and taking risks because I, I don't want to risk my family, my income, I, I couldn't do that. It's not something that's even fathomable to me. But for some, it's not, don't worry about that crap, take the risk and the rewards will come. And that, even right. that even that won't sell it to me. I, I can't do it. And I think yeah. li limitations is something we have to be aware of and accept in how we think about things. And I, I think that uh, puts up a big red flag to people that say, well, we're all limitless and we can be everything we want to be. And maybe we can't, maybe we can't, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, it really, I think it, it turns everything upside down, but it makes it, it's a healthier way of looking at it. If we say, look, I, maybe I can't think outside the box and maybe we should stop teaching people to do that. Maybe what I want to do is think inside my box and be the best at it. And those are the, those are the successful people, you know? And so it, it's, it's and when you think about it and, and if you're running a company or if you're running a team, you kind of know it's like there are limitations in thinking. It has nothing to do with intelligence, but there's just a fit. And until we can accept that, we can't help people achieve what they want in life. And we're going to seduce them. We're going to say, oh, you should be an entrepreneur. It's like, really? You could be a disaster as an entrepreneur. And, and uh, maybe entrepreneurs have a certain makeup and we're finding more and more evidence that they do. You know, you look at Elon Musk or Richard Branson. I mean, oh, geez, I'm going to start records. Well, maybe we should put it online. No, you know what? Satellites look like they're fun. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll do a train. I like trains. Maybe, maybe we can start an airline. Hey, cell phones. Now, this is just for breakfast. All right. This is your breakfast conversation with these guys. And they're doing it. Now, in their history, were there failures? Oh, tons. I mean, when they, when they open up their history, it's like, oh, yeah, we almost got bankrupt here. We lost, lost everything here. That's the point. 
you see. And you don't want to have too many people doing this because the world will go into chaos, but you do want to have a few, you know, like what if we have Mars colonies? Well, we're going to need them someday because I don't know what we're going to do to this planet. Hopefully (laughs) as civilization has a place to go and thank God these guys are doing it for us. I think for everybody, it's a, it's great to say, you know, what level of leadership am I, can I be competent at and good at, and let me be the best there and not try to be something else. Because at the end of the day, it may not end well if you're put past your capabilities. I was going to go to asking you about roadblocks to effective leadership. I think you've, you've addressed a lot of them there and, and uh, uh, one thing I take away personally from this is that underst- understanding where you're at is important because I think my thinking around this topic at almost 50 is different to what I thought about it in my 20s and 30s. And I, I think time, and I, I, I don't have evidence to back this, so this is more a, 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 a personal reflection here, is that I think as you move through a career as you age and as you deal with more human beings that some of these foundational things may become realizations for you if and this is a big if if you're the kind of person that is happy to be reflective and introspective and maybe call yourself on some bullshit as as your career and as you progress as a human being and i think that's a time-based thing and i'm, I'm not an advocate by any stretch that says that someone who's 20 can't be the best leader in the world if they've got those certain key elements ready to go. But I think some of the best and most, sorry, not best is not the right word. It's the most effective leaders I've run into have had some time and some skin in the game in life and in an industry, and they've learned some things and they've progressed that way, but not that doesn't happen for everyone. And I don't think the entrepreneurs fit in that space either. I think there's a spectrum there. Well, I think uh, what's interesting is the training we used to do around that I'm trying to resurrect because Oxford University gave me permission to use this ancient manuscript from a professor at the University of Australia and Oriental Studies, uh, Dr. Al Sadler. And about, oh, I don't know, 70 years ago, he translated this ancient manuscript for training samurai. And they happened to discover that one of the things we're not teaching leadership is how to have death to self, death to the ego, death to what they call the evil spirit. And by putting that in place as a young person gives you more power because you can be braver that way and you can have more honor that way. So we're trying to teach bravery and honor using what Oxmoo so generously gave me permission to have access to. And then when I published my first book back in the 90s called The Code of the Executive, that's what it was about. And the first chapter was on death. And that's how they train their samurai managers to lead samurai organizations. Look, there's always pearls of wisdom somewhere. And the fact that you could use that and share that, that thinking is uh, the whole reason I do what I do is to try and get people's voices out there. And I hope that when someone listens to this, if they vehemently disagree with what you say, if they've got enough now, they'll contact me and say, let's have a chat about what, what was discussed because it, <laughs> this, this is the only way that I'll learn. I'm, I'm, I'm a curious fellow, but I don't know everything. And I know that I don't know some things. So these conversations are, are good for that. Now, Don. The elephant in the room, COVID-19. So from your experience, and we're now almost into year three of the, this uh, pandemic and its, and its impacts on the way we do business and the way we think about the world of work, do you believe there's been an impact on how people look at leadership or is it too early to make a call on that? No, I think um, it did a couple of things because I do a lot of speaking at industry conferences or I'll, or go, I'll do stuff inside companies so I can do in that space a lot of uh, data collection. And so I've been collecting data on this. And a couple of things came out of that. One was 
I think it says, it demonstrates that we can still lead even if we are remote, but we have to access something. One of the things I teach in the workshop is uh, how to align culture by stimulating the tribal grouping instincts that we have as a species. By triggering grouping instincts, we can have cultures that extend remotely without everybody being in the same place. And a lot of uh, military organizations know how to do this. Religious organizations know how to do this. You know, we can have missions around the world and everyone is operating as if they're in the same company. Well, how does that happen? It happens by teaching, unfortunately, what we don't teach anymore, but I'm trying to get it out there again, is triggering grouping behaviors can be done if you alter the symbols and the rituals and the magic of the human group. Uh, symbols and rituals are obvious. The magic, I call that the magic moments, the magic stories that we tell each other about who we are. And CEOs that know how to do this have the most powerful cultures, whether they are together or remote. So COVID helped demonstrate that that still works. You don't have to have a global army or a global missionary uh, a spiritual force out there. It's just, it works in, in companies. The other part is I noticed that I will... Uh, test the audience, and these are mostly executives, uh, sometimes middle managers, and uh, and or maybe just CEOs. I'll say, what? How much time is spent being wasted in your company from dysfunctional political behavior? And they'll have a whole list because I haven't generated the list earlier. And I'll go back to that list and say, okay, all this stuff, the silos, the gossip, the backbiting, the politics, the maneuvering, and what else? How much time is wasted? And I get a range of twenty to eighty percent, and the average is around fifty. And this is interesting because when you calculate that 50% waste, it's millions of dollars being lost in the company. It's, it's a hidden hemorrhage of human capital. But during COVID, what happened is it dropped back to like 33%. I was totally unprepared for that. And I kept looking at this data because I would do maybe 10 speeches a month and collect these groups of data. And I'd say, why is it 33%? Is everybody becoming more effective? And then I realized, no, it's because the humans are no longer together. They're remote. So COVID actually proved and validated something else. And that is that when we get together in groups, the leader has to spend more time diminishing this, uh, the samurai called the evil spirit, generating this selfish interplay, this dysfunctional behavior. And so I make a joke of it. I'm like, wow, you guys are at 33%. But the bad news is the humans are coming back. <laughs> So it's going to start going back to 50%. So um, yeah, that's what I've learned so far. (laughs) Interesting. And you mentioned again at the start of that response, this idea about talking about your narratives and uh, creating a story and and getting people invested in in a story of potentially a vision for what what it is that you're doing and I've not come across it a lot but more the more conversations I'm having the more people are talking about how do you create a com- a compelling business case it used to be called business case but now it's the story of why should I give a crap if I'm working for you if I'm doing what I need to do from 9 to 5 and I'm not giving you more th- than what is required in the role I think what you're alluding to is those maybe teams that are higher functioning will go that extra mile, not because they're to ask to, is because they want to invest in a, in a shared vision and, and they're on board. And I think that's very difficult to do. And and the, the best, the most effective leaders that are out there do that very well, or at least know how to set the foundation of the story. So, so people get invested in and build 
that narrative together. Um, I've I've been part of that, and I've I've not me leading that process, but seeing it led by someone else and unpacking what they did. It was so simple what they did, but it was very effective, and people bought into, hey, yeah, we've we've got to get there, and this is this is the mission, the the mission and the vision. Being able to look at a strategic plan, for example, that's out for five years, and say maybe in COVID we need to have something with a shorter time frame, and if we have to ditch it and start again. That's about being strategic and thinking about if option A didn't work, what's option B? And again, something yeah. I've learned from from the the good people that I've talked to that have have served in the military or are currently serving is that they learn that and they have a plan A, B, C, and D. And because they've had time to practice those scenarios, that as soon as A doesn't work, they're already looking to B and getting ready C and C dash one and C dash that they've got their plans ready to go. And I think. As much as some people will look at as too compartmentalized, I think it gives you options. And if a scenario goes to poo, you've got an ability to get to something else. And I don't think that's a common way of thinking when it comes to being able to to change that way. It's a belief shift that for future leadership, I think adaptability is good. The capacity to adapt fast is going to be a critical thing. And I learned this when we were working with Black Hawk Down and I was trying to research like what happened in Black Hawk Down and, and uh, Matt Eversman, who was, uh, uh, I got to know very well. And I, what I realized is that, you know, they train differently. And I think we all have to train differently. We have to be able to say, look, we need a plan, but let's realize the plan won't work. The plan will never survive impact with reality. And we need to train that way. Because what that means is, and as Matt said so well, you know, the enemy has a vote on your plan and they may not agree with it. So you need a plan, but execution we often overlook, but execution requires constant course correction, constant adaptation, constant, uh, you know, change and readjusting. And so that's what I think we should be teaching for future leadership. Don, final topic area, and this is one that I'm getting uh, more into in in my own podcasting because I I really want to tease this out. And I don't know if it's a controversial question, but it definitely gets people thinking, what constitutes fit for future leadership? Well, first I, I build off on, are you fit to adapt? And I'd go back to this, the samurai area. Are you are you fit to die? And, and by die, and this is when we work with executive teams, it sounds very controversial until they understand what we're saying. It's like, are you willing, can you commit suicide to your ego's agenda? Can you kill that part of yourself that's holding you back? As a team, do you all know how to die properly together? All this death stuff came out, we began testing it. And then we had the medical research at Hopkins as to what was happening neurologically to unhook selfish ego-driven behaviors. And it worked. It works. So I think for the future, yeah, you have to adapt, but adapting means something must die. Maybe it's the expectation you had about the plan working. Maybe it's the project that you had put your heart and soul into and you now have to let it go. You know, maybe it's a product line that you've been the champion for, but something must die for you to adapt. And so I think by having that in place and in your training as a leader will allow you to outmaneuver the competition and execute better. Why do we need leadership? And I guess in a business context, because you're competing with other organizations that are asking the same questions and what's going to be your point of difference? What's going to make you stand out and help you survive long-term versus not? Is there any truth to the following that uh, lots of organizations aren't thinking about their competition, but are too inwardly focused on what they're doing? Is that a common problem? 
Yeah. In the life cycle of organizations, and there's all kinds of interesting models around that, you do reach a point where all of a sudden you become obsessed with the internal production and you stop thinking entrepreneurially. You stop, you stop looking outside. You stop. My, my colleague, uh, George Stalk, who helped launch the Lean Revolution years ago and time-based competition, every week or two, George and I get on, get, get on Zoom for a couple of hours and just, we're, we're thinking about doing some podcasts too. It's kind of cool. I'm learning from people like you on how this works. And he brought a great paper in Harvard Business Review about a year ago on disruption. And it all fits for this. In other words, the adaptation, which was published using a technique called the OODA loop, O-O-D-A. OODA loop was a uh, technique used by military jet fighter pilots back in the Korean War to outmaneuver the higher performing MiGs. And some pilots would have a 10 to 1 kill ratio using an inferior aircraft. Now, how do you do that? And it had to do with this OODA concept, this observing, orienting, and then deciding and acting. And that and that process is a loop. And what, what Harvard published and why there seems to be a lot of interest in this is this is how executives need to think. You know, we have to be looping through, observing what's going on, reorienting ourselves, you know, looking at our decision options and taking action and doing that faster and faster. So as we compete, you know, the world is changing so fast. Those that can do it well enough could avoid disruption or maybe even cause disruption in the industry. So I think that's um, that's another answer to your question about fit for future leadership. And one final thought from you looking at the world of leadership as we see it today. Give me your, maybe your top three issues going forward for leadership and things that uh, we should be thinking about when we're looking at leader development. Oh, in terms of leader development, I think a lot of, um, I mean, I love your podcast because you're, you're asking these questions and that actually get to that point is, you know, can we develop according to the capabilities we have versus trying to assume their capabilities that they don't have because maybe we don't want to hurt their feelings, but there's sometimes you have to say, look, it's not going to work. And the other part is uh, developing that that sense of self-awareness to where, you know, is our ego getting in the way? And, and then what has to die for, in order for us to move forward? You can put anything else on top of that, because once you build honor and bravery and, and this, this, this self-awareness, I, I think this person is a keeper. You know what I mean? They, they, you can, they can take on projects to their level and outperform. And those, that's who you want around you. You know, that's, that's because at the end of the day, uh, they're following the story you represent, but if they don't believe in you and they don't execute, the story is not going to make it. The whole purpose of having these conversations is to start people looking at the topic of leadership, because like you said, there are a lot of people offering training, there are a lot of people doing research, and uh, this as a subject area is not shrinking in importance, it's gaining in importance, and it's kind of ironic that it took a pandemic on topics like this for people to start thinking about what does this look like, because you mentioned this before, and and. I won't let you go away until I ask this about uh, teams and about people is that for some of us, and I've worked from a home office on my own for the last seven years, this not working in an office environment didn't bother me. But in my, in my youth, I worked in teams and it was great, but different stage in my life. I love working on my own. I, I 
do what I need to do and I get a lot of things done and I don't have the interruptions of other people around me, but that's okay because I don't need them to be energized. Yeah. And this idea yeah. about where do you draw your energy? Are you a, If you're an introvert, you draw that from within. If you're an extrovert, you need people and things around you. And I'm definitely in that first camp and not yeah. the second. And I've met people that are people, people, and that COVID has really thrown a wrench in the works on how they interact with the world. Do you think there needs to be more understanding of the importance of how a team works together and the environments in which you need to provide to make that thrive so that you get the best out of your your team and yourself? Yeah. I think companies are starting to reevaluate. Does everybody need to be here? If we're doing transactional work, you don't need to be here all the time. I mean, if you're more comfortable at home, Stay home and do transactional work. If you're doing problem solving, decision making, or creative elements or other things that are more strategic, yeah, we need to be with other people because the dynamic there works best as well. But we can always adapt. I mean, like you see my studio here, this is a cigar room that I turned into a film studio because people were saying, you need a program called Becoming Samurai to put everything you're talking about. So I started a like a six-week program on becoming samurai. So people can like log on, credit card, boom. Now you've got me on stage here in my studio teaching becoming samurai. I never would have thought about doing this, right? Because I'm a teacher. I love teaching. I love researching and teaching. So this gave me another way that I, I mean, that's almost like, geez, thanks for the opportunity. Otherwise I still be out there on an airplane, which I am now still talking and speaking around the world. But yeah, I think it's companies and individuals are being forced to reconsider, huh? Do I need to be in a place, you know? And if so, how much? And and I think I think contribution and results to be produced will determine the answer to those questions. Yeah, could could not agree more. I was I was going to say, and and tongue in cheek, that even you, Don, have been forced to pivot and do do some things a little a little differently. And look again, I appreciate your time, Don. Thank, thank you for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. For those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. Thank you again for following the podcast. I will put links in the podcast description, including ways to look at the work that Don has been doing. Don, thank you for your time. Great. Thanks for having me along. Thanks, everyone. And we'll catch you all on the next podcast.